0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to ouramericanstories.com that's ouramericanstories.com and by the way if you want our free newsletter sending you our three best stories each week sign up for our newsletter again at ouramericanstories.com and now our next story it comes to us from Craig Sumner who worked at NASA from the time of the Apollo missions. Today, Craig volunteers at U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Take it away, Craig.
1: I had a dad that was a Marine fighter pilot, in in this case, in World War II in Korea. And i got to put a little excerpt in here. You know, what my parents did were kind of my benchmark. And Dad flew in the Pacific dropping bombs on Japanese islands. And he flew one mission with Charles Lindbergh. And where most of these Marines would take off with a 1,000-pound bomb in the center and two 500-pound bombs on the wing, Charles Lindbergh took off with three 1,000-pound bombs and went on to design a 2,000-pound bomb released in the center. Those stories kind of stayed with me as a young person, and I knew someday I wanted to fly. And so as I started thinking about NASA, when it it really started going in the 60s, uh, I thought, I really would like to go work for NASA. I used to build model airplanes, the Blue Angels, you know, I'd build space stations. So I had a dream, I had an interest in following that kind of a path. I wasn't the strongest student. When I first got started in school, I became a lot more serious later on and realized how important that math and science was gonna be to me in order for me to be able to make choices. You know, I'd finished up two years of, of college and I had an associate of science degree in electrical engineering. And the last two years was a system science degree. And I really didn't quite know what I was going to do with that degree. And I learned about the co op program out of the University of West Florida in Pensacola. So I went over and talked to them, and they said, How would you like to go work at NASA at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama? And we'll pay you to go. And I got involved on the Lunar Rover program, which was a moon buggy program that they told us if you start, you've got to finish in 17 and a half months. Deliver it to the Kennedy Space Center to go on an Apollo vehicle going to the moon or don't start. $19 million program to go build four lunar rovers for $19 million that wound up costing $39 million before it was all over with. So it's hot and cold on the moon. Uh, the hottest temperature is 250 degrees Fahrenheit, the coldest temperature is 250 degrees below zero. So those are the environments that our astronauts, the LIM, the lunar excursion module, and the lunar rover all had to be able to endure on the moon's surface, and it can't break down. So in the course of building the lunar rover, I'd go pick up these astronauts that were going to the moon. I'd take them in my 66 Valiant Plymouth, I still have it, and I'd drive them over to our training facility, and the conversation front seat to back seat between many of the astronauts that I carried was like, if you hadn't cut me off at 10,000 feet in my fighter airplane, they were flying T-38s, I would have got on the ground first. And I was thinking to myself as a young 20-year-old at the time, these guys are crazy. They're up there jockeying around in the skies, racing each other from Houston up to the Redstone Arsenal here, and, and fighting to see who's going to land on the ground is kind of a bad badge of courage. But when they put on their spacesuits and climbed up in our simulators out at the Marshall Space Flight Center, it was all business. John Young was my favorite. So I gotta tell you about John. When John was eight years old, there was a knock at the door and they took his mother away. She had a mental illness. She was a paranoid schizophrenic. John's dad was a delivery man. John got farmed out to aunts and uncles, neighbors, and graduated top in his high school class, college, flight school. Astronaut corps flew Gemini, flew Apollo, went to the moon. He was our first shuttle commander, and and John was more passionate in college than I was. John studied six nights a week to one o'clock in the morning. So when we were all ready to go home after a eight eight ten hour day, John's ready to go another six hours, and his dedication just was immense. And so, you know, when I look at somebody like that, and and I was in flight readiness reviews where I'm up presenting and John Young asked a question. And either you don't know the answer or you've got the answer and you tell him. But if you don't know the answer, don't give them something that's not right. And fortunately, this team effort, you know, somebody might pipe up and answer it or we'd go off and get the answer. But at the end of every question John asked, he'd always say, just asking. And everybody would laugh. John said, I don't understand why everybody laughed when I said that. I was dead serious. So as we got close to the the actual Apollo 15 mission, I got selected to be part of their backup team. It was an engineering backup team out here at the Marshall Space Flight Center. And when they landed on the moon, they didn't land on a nice flat surface. And they had one of their footpads down in a hole, and the whole thing was leaning over so it wasn't level. And we thought when the moon buggy came out, it might get hung up on something. Well, they didn't go 240,000 miles to leave it stuck up there on the side of the limb. And fortunately, it all deployed out just the way you would expect it to. They put up their poolside seats, jumped in there, threw a few switches, put on their Velcro seat belts, and away they went at eight miles an hour. Now eight doesn't sound very fast, but on Apollo 11, our first landing on the moon, our astronauts had to just walk around, and the suits I told you, you know, they only weighed 60 or 70 pounds total, but it's still a lot of work walking around up there on the moon's surface. On Apollo 16, the first day they were up there it was 85 degrees outside. As soon as you walk behind a boulder and get out of the sun's rays, you're out of the app. At- there is no atmosphere up there. It drops down to up to 250 degrees below zero. So it was kind of fun. You know, it was my 15 minutes of fame, and nobody knew that I was really doing this, you know, up here. uh, My parents did, my sisters did, uh, some of my friends. But I was having the experience of my life. And talking to these astronauts as I drive them over to our simulation facility, go have a biscuit with them, listen to them talk about flying the T-38 jet, little did I know within about a year I was going to be flying the same airplane. Because when this program was over, so was my draft deferment got caught up in a draft lottery. Well, that didn't help me any, because the first draft lottery was up to like 100 and something, and my number was 62. And so I was off to go to flight school. And I got to go fly some jets and, and get to do some of the things that these astronauts that I got to work with shared with me over a biscuit or a cup of coffee or while we were waiting for the simulator to get up and going. So I went off and did that. And unfortunately, after four years, the war was over, and I got to get out of the service early. And guess where I wanted to come back? want to come back to the Marshall Space Flight Center and work for NASA again. So at the time I left, we were building the maps for the space shuttle to land down at the Kennedy Space Center. And this covered a wall all across the back of a large conference room, if you could picture that. And there were cameras mounted to it. And off in another room was a hydraulic simulator, a six-degree of freedom simulator that the astronauts would climb in and fly around the Cape and come back in and land in the space shuttle. Remember, it's unpowered, so they get one shot at this. And believe me, the astronauts that have flown the space shuttle have flown time and time again, and airplanes that simulated landing like the shuttle, and uh, then they had simulators that they could practice on too to try to hone in their skills and work through all those emergency procedures that they would be responsible for in the real world. When I came back, politics had changed, and a lot of the training that we were doing here at the Marshall Space Flight Center with the astronauts was being moved to Houston. In fact, I used to go into the neutral buoyancy tank, our swimming pool, out at the Marshall Space Flight Center. It was uh, 40 feet deep, 60 feet across, and we would submerge space hardware in there. And when I came back after getting out of the service in 1976, Skylab was starting to decay in its orbit. It was up there rolling, it was tumbling end over end, had somewhat of an optical roll to it as well. And so we were building a teleoperator system that would go up and dock with Skylab and push it up into a higher orbit. And our astronauts would fly up here from Houston, before they moved all the training down to Houston, and they would get in the simulators. We would allow them to fly this thing out of the back of the orbiter and go try to dock to Skylab and then run out of gas. Well, I was a young, now 27-year-old, and I'd flown it every day for eight hours a day, and I got pretty proficient. honing in my skills and being able to do it within a tank of gas. And so our science and engineering director was speaking to a senate subcommittee and said if the guys down in Houston can't do it, we've got an engineer at the Marshall Space Flight Center that could. And once again, I thought I was going to get my 15 minutes of fame. But uh, that wasn't to happen. Um, Skylab unfortunately uh, came back into Australia. Uh, decayed in its orbit and burned up for the most part as it came back in. We didn't have the shuttle ready in time, and so that's what happened. So then I started getting involved in the space shuttle program, and I continued my education as I was working with NASA and learning about project management, and I thought maybe that was something that I could really go do. I had this jet experience and flying C-130s, and I thought, okay, I got some good leadership skills. What can I do with that? And that's probably one of the highlights of my career, was working on the space shuttle program. I was the deputy project manager of the space shuttle external tank. We built those down in New Orleans, just like we did the C-5. And then we finished building them, and we'd put them on a barge, tie it to a tug with a 2,500-foot rope, one inch in diameter, and haul it down through the Gulf of Mexico, around the Keys and up the Atlantic coast to the Kennedy Space Center, and offload it, and put it up on the 8th floor of the vertical assembly building until we were ready to integrate it over on the other side of the aisle, as we called it, to get a stack ready to roll out to the pad. I'd get on an airplane out here at Redstone Arsenal, NASA airplane, be about eight of us on board, and we'd land on the shuttle landing strip down in Florida. And it's such a pretty sight to see as you come up on a runway that's three miles long, 300 feet wide, I believe, and uh, go get in our rental car, and then go into work about 10 hours prior to a space shuttle launch. And my team, I hate the word I, because it was the people around me that really accomplished the work at hand. We'd load 535,000 gallons of fuel on board, and about two and a half hours prior to a shuttle launch, we'd bring the crew out and uh, strap them into the space shuttle. And about 10, 10 minus 9 minutes, we'd give the launch director permission to go fly. And I never thought I'd find myself in the same firing room as Werner Von Braun, who was my first center director, and have the privilege of representing the team that built this magnificent machine and put it into put it into orbit. When I went down to my first space shuttle launch, you sit in a control room with a headset. And sitting beside you is a project manager from the contractor, Lockheed Martin, or Martin Marietta when I first started. And the two of you have got these headsets on to folks down in New Orleans and people up at the Marshall Space Flight Center and our Huntsville Operations Support Center. A lot more people than I really realized were out there available to me. And I was a fairly new project manager when my boss's daughter was killed in an automobile accident, 17 years old, and he called up and and told me of that tragic event. He said, Craig, I need you to go to the launch and all of a sudden I realized I was going to go from just learning about this vehicle but representing this team. So I carried all these books with me, all these technical manuals, and I was reading to late in the night trying to get up to speed where I could maybe contribute to what was going to go on, only to find out that just by pressing a button on my console when something came up or something happened that I had an extensive group of people, men and women out there, that I could call on and work issues. And there are issues. When you're tanking this vehicle for eight hours or so, things start to happen to the vehicle. We're putting these really extremely cold temperatures in the hydrogen tank, 423 degrees below zero, in the LOX tank over 300 degrees below zero, and the foam, the thermal protection system on the outside sometimes doesn't behave the way it wants to, and you don't fly the next day. You have to go out there and actually do a repair. And then you get some surprises sometimes. Three-day weekend, everybody takes off, and it was the mating seasons for the red-headed woodpecker. And if it wasn't a red-headed, it's the one that I remember. This one woodpecker put over 200 holes in our external tank. Some very, very smart folks flew with me down to the Kennedy Space Center, and we went out and climbed up on the external tank. I put a harness on, and did you watch a shuttle flight with a beanie cap that raises up at the very end and swings over out of the way? that's where i was at uh, looking for holes in the external tank and make a recommendation to my program managers on what we needed to do to fix that while i was standing out there you know you're every bit of 250 feet off the ground and you're looking straight down to the ground and something was staring at me have you ever had that happen there were five birds vultures up in the sea breeze stationary 40 feet above my head looking at this tasty morsel trying to count woodpecker holes, and uh, you just never forget that image, you know? Shouldn't be anybody around me, and I felt something staring at me, and I still occasionally look up to see what's up there. But I would say my very first space shuttle launch was probably probably the most stressful, and it just got better and better after that. When it counts down to zero, you can't help but stand up out of your seat and turn around, and three miles away, you see the engines roaring to life and the vehicle coming to life. And it's doing hundred miles an hour before it ever clears the launch pad, trying to get up to that magic speed of 17,500 miles an hour, the orbital velocity that you need to stay in low earth orbit. And uh, it's just, it was just totally awesome. And the, and the men and women that I got to work with and, and their backgrounds, I would sit with people from all walks of life who had a particular gift of wanting to be an astronaut, who had PhDs and master's degrees, skilled way beyond my understanding of engineering that were being selected to go fly into space. And I sat one night with Katie Coleman, and she was a brand new astronaut. We were fixing to talk to a group of 100 people at a manned flight awareness dinner, and we were going to watch a space shuttle launch the next day. And I sat there somewhat kind of uneasy with this young lady that had excelled so well in her academic career and been selected, which is a very competitive process to be an astronaut. And I was about halfway through my dinner when she leaned over she said, you know, I'm really nervous about this, getting up in front and talking to these people. And of course, I just kind of took a deep breath like I did it every day and explained to her what she was going to see the next day because it was going to be her first launch too. And uh, then to watch her career blossom and go up and stay on the International Space Station and fly several times with so many of the other men and women as a team effort was pretty phenomenal as well. The is immense when you sit in that room and realize you've got five or more souls out there on the space shuttle fixing to go launch. And all the people that we had affect if we had some kind of an accident, puts a lot of uh, stress, I think, on the launch team. But we were up to the challenge. Jim Odom was the first uh, project manager on the space shuttle external tank and uh, time and time again he told us test what you fly and fly what you test and when the money gets short guess what gets taken off the table I'm about to go run a test that's going to cost four hundred thousand dollars it's a lot of money and it's to determine whether the foam that we use on the downcomers, the feed lines, that bring liquid oxygen off the new space launch vehicle down to the engines if that foam will stay on there. If it doesn't stay on, it's become a debris hazard, and only through tests do you really find out whether something's going to work or not. And it helps anchor your analysis, and it gives you confidence and margins that you might not otherwise have. And the wrong place to find out about it is after the vehicle's built. Test pilots are, uh, are an interesting breed of men and women. And so when I was flying C-130s, a lot of times I got these arrogant pilots on board, and I'm smiling, but they knew everything. And but when they were on my airplane, they had to follow our rules, and they weren't my rules. They were, they were standard rules. A lot of times they didn't go by the rules. So um, one of the things my dad taught me as a as a jet pilot, you better fly within the envelope, and that's within all the training, with all the education they can possibly give you. And if you fly outside the envelope, be prepared to suffer the consequences." And so he didn't live by his own advice. He uh, would exceed the limiting altitude in a Corsair for the failure of different pumps that did different things in the engines. And, you know, he could burn those out, you know. And And the torque on these Corsairs that my dad flew were so strong that if you threw the power to it and didn't have some left rudder put in, uh, you might lose a wing, which he did during takeoff. And the next day, he went in to see his commander, expecting to be put out of the Marine Corps. The commander had enough wisdom, and there was a war going on, so that probably helped. Uh, Lieutenant, did you learn anything? So, yeah, you you, you get some of that stuff along the way that really helps ground you into people saying, no, we're not going to do tests and you know that it's going to require a test and you have to keep pushing on it even when they say no and if you know you're right then you've got to stand up and say what you really truly believe and if you can't do that then you need to be in a follower job and follower jobs are important but if you're going to be in a leadership role you also need to be able to listen it'll be that quiet person in your group that has a solution to your problem that you don't call on or that you don't see on the side and and get the information that you need for the team to benefit from. But, um, you know, these guys in the Apollo uh, were fearless. So I was sitting with Fred Hayes out in Denver, and everybody tells me, hey, when when you get around Fred, ask him what it was like on Apollo 13. Well, can you imagine how many times he's been asked what was it like on Apollo 13? So I'm sitting there, we're waiting to fly the simulator, and I look over at Fred, and I say, hey, Fred, so how was it on Apollo 13? And he just kind of looks around, you know. He's looking for a camera. Or who's the smart aleck that put you up to it? Other than I almost died, you know, was the way he started off my conversation, and that kind of stuck with me, you know? So, you know, Alan Shepard, our first man into space, on Apollo thir- on Apollo 14, he and Ed Mitchell have already separated from the command and service module, and they're in their limb going down to the moon, and their radar's not working. And at 10,000 feet, it's a no-go. You know, everything's supposed to be working at 10,000 feet. Mission Control knows that it's not working. Al Shepard knows it's not working. And he looks over to Ed Mitchell and he said, don't touch that button. It's the abort button up here that takes you back up immediately to the command and service module. Ed said, yes, sir. They're backwards. They can't even see where they're going. They're deaccelerating. And people in Mission Control knows this guy that's been agrounded for 11 years got put back on flight status, put himself on this mission, he's going to go in visually. So they got to thinking real quick, you know, what in the world could they possibly do? And they called up and said, hey, Al, reach over and unplug the circuit breaker to the radar, count to five and plug it back in. It rebooted just like your computer at home. And I think they landed within like 60 feet. So, you know, they're on the moon. They're going through their checklists of shutting off engines and this, that, and the other. And Ed Mitchell looks over and he says, hey, Al, Just curious, would you have gone in visually? Shepard looked over and said, you'll never know. And they're both deceased, and he never would tell Ed Mitchell what he really was going to do, but most of us were convinced he would have gone in visually. Now, he'd have gotten in a lot of trouble. He didn't care. (laughs) He was probably going to be done when he got back, assuming he didn't get smushed on the moon surface. Those were the risk-takers. And take people like John Sh- John uh, Young, my favorite astronaut, go look at his heart rate landing on the moon's surface. You know, it elevated a little bit because he had somebody standing beside him, Charlie Duke, you know, that's supposed to be doing his job, but that probably put a little bit of stress on him. Every other commander, it kind of peaked on up their ways. But cool, calm, and collected John Young, he knew what his focus was going to be on, and that was to land on the moon and land where he was supposed to land and he did it. Werner von Braun was my center director. But what I got locked into when I came up here was one of the second generation of Germans that came over, and his name was Heinz Losser. And Heinz was responsible for building the moon map that would simulate us driving on the moon. So we had pictures of what that surface looked like where we were going to be landing, and with foam rubber and latex paint, I watched Heinz Losser use a blowtorch and nitrogen to burn a crater and put it out, burn a crater, put it out, and look at a 3-D picture over here and keep going. And when he was done, all this stuff started coming together. I was a computer programmer, and the simulator that we had downstairs was just like any other flight simulator that you see today that commercial pilots use, military pilots use. Our lunar rover program only had a, about a three-foot round screen sitting in front of us up on this hydraulic system that was 100 yards away from the computers that ran it and the map that the German that I got to work with built. And all of that came together with four little Teflon balls that ran across the little bumps and crooks and crannies of this latex map. So the team were NASA civil servants, contractor individuals, but it took a team. It took a team. Nobody did this on their own. It's amazing. I think what I missed the most when I retired were the people. And so the triumph was is to go find a group of people that had faith in you, that you could provide the environment, the leadership, and the support, and the encouragement, and turn that team loose and watch them excel. And when that happens, you've got something going. It far exceeds anything that you can do as an individual.
0: And you've been listening to Craig Sumner, And his life story. Great job, as always, to Monty for bringing us that piece. And his inspiration, of course, his father, a Marine fighter pilot in World War II in the Pacific Theater. That's a hard thing to live up to as a son. And his dad had advised him, always fly within the envelope. Fly outside the envelope and prepare to suffer the consequences. I also love that line, test what you fly and fly what you test. And the original test flight dummies were two guys called the Wright Brothers. By the way, we have David McCullough telling the story of the Wright brothers because they actually tested what they flew and it differentiated them from everybody else who was tinkering. Engineers engineered, pilots flew and they couldn't talk to each other. The Wright brothers knew both angles, both flew and the remarkable story of those two aviators, the first, the original spaceman is available at ouramericanstories.com by the venerable David McCullough himself telling the story. The story of Craig Sumner The story of NASA, in a way, an American flight and innovation and space adventure here on Our American Story.
2: Exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly
3: away
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we bumped in with that classic Sinatra song because we're featuring stories about Frank Sinatra from the great comedian Tom Dreesen. Tom was Frank's opening act during the last 14 years of his career. They did countless shows together They did plane rides across the country together, nights of laughter that went into the wee hours of the morning. Tom Dreesen was arguably one of the closest people to Sinatra near the end of his career. By the way, we did a terrific hour on Tom himself and his life in our American Dreamers series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to it. And again, here's our very first episode of Come Fly With Me. Take it away, Joey.
4: So, Tom, in in the late 70s and early 80s, you were having an awesome career, opening up with the likes of Sammy Davis Jr. and Smokey Robinson. And then, all of a sudden, you had the opportunity to open up with the king of show business. Tell us how that happened. In
5: 1982, I was working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe with Smokey Robinson. i have been touring with Smokey for a, a while. To this day, we're the best of friends. So I'm working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe in 1982, and Frank Sinatra's appearing next door at Harrah's, where I had worked many times before in the past, and I wanted to see Frank's show, uh, because I had seen him once before in a 20,000-seat arena here in in Chicago at the uh, Chicago Stadium, and to watch him walk out on the stage, when he walked out on stage, he created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. The audience was electrified by just the mere fact that Frank Sinatra was walking out, so I didn't want to miss that opening. So our shows were simultaneous. So when I came off stage that night, I bolted. I left Caesars and ran out the door, didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and uh, and ran over to Harris. I was running into the showroom, and they knew I was coming. The maitre d' knew I was coming, so they had a place for me. So as I was rushing into the showroom, the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, was talking to some big heavyset guy with a cigar, and he saw me. And he said, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over, because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy himself. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that you know, a million times before. And he winked at the vice president, and I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 and I knew he was putting me on, you know. And I, and I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And a week later, I got a call that they want me to work with Frank Sinatra, the Golden Nugget, in Atlantic City.
4: Were you expecting that call?
5: No. I, I mean, I, I told my manager afterward, I said, gee, I met Frank Sinatra's lawyer, and uh, Holmes Henderson plugged me to open for him. Uh, but anyhow, I, I, I you know, in the back of your mind, you're saying, gee, this, maybe that might happen. But, you know, I didn't think in my wildest dreams that Frank Sinatra would want me to be his opening act. He had his daughter, Nancy, and and uh, other comedians that were working with him at the time. And uh, anyhow, I got the call. Uh, worked with Frank one week at, at Atlantic City, so uh, at the Golden Nugget. So I went there thinking, I'm going to get my picture taken with him and hang it in every bar in Chicago and say that I got to meet Frank Sinatra and got to open for him. And the second night I was there at the golden nugget he and his wife barbara sinatra took me out to dinner that
4: night after our second show now tell me what the first show was like so you know at the time you already had been performing with people like sammy davis jr and all that so i'm sure you were already over the the nerves of performing for large audiences but now you're performing with literally the king of show business were you anxious were you nervous Every opening
5: night for every artist that you're opening for, when you're opening for their audience, you know, opening for Smokey's audience and Sammy's audiences, you you immediately, you get a feeling, and I knew how to work in front of those audiences. Now I'm opening for Frank Sinatra. I mean, that's like an altar boy serving mass for the Pope. You You know, he was show business. He was everything that I ever dreamed show business was. You know, I was a little boy shining shoes in bars, and he was on the jukebox, and every bar that I shined shoes in, and every guy in that neighborhood, every neighborhood guy wanted to be like Sinatra, you know. So now I'm with him. T- tell us
4: about the first time you actually met him.
5: It was at rehearsal. And I went into rehearsal, and his conductor at that time was a guy named Joe Parnello. And I knew Joe Parnello. So when I walked out on stage, Frank was rehearsing. I just was kind of off to the side. Frank was going over some numbers with Joe. And Joe said, hi, Tommy, how you doing? And Frank said, who's that? And he said, he's the comedian on the show. And Frank said to him, is he funny? And Joe, Joe Parnello said, yeah, he's very funny, Mr. S., you know, and he, he smiled, you know, Frank smiled, you know. Now I really had some pressure, because uh, I figured if I didn't do good, Joe would get fired, too, for recommending me, you know. But anyhow, that opening night, I went out and, uh, and you know, had the, had a little bit of the nerves waiting in the wings, and then all of a sudden, when they introduced me and I walked out, I'd, I had been there before. I've done this before, and I just let that happen, you know, and... Uh, and, and it was a, I scored real well. And the second night, after after we had done a couple of shows together, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And we were having dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. In the middle of dinner, he set his knife and his fork down. And he, I was sitting across from him. He looked me right in the eye. He said, I like your material. And I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, you can. And as you know, it turned out to be... Forty-five, fifty cities a year for 14 years.
4: What was that dinner like? You know, you, you, were, you just performed for Frank Sinatra for the first two times in your life, and now all of a sudden you're sitting across the table from him.
5: Well, the first time going to dinner with him, you're really watching yourself. But I'll tell you something funny that happened at that dinner that I, I haven't told anybody. I've told a couple of my buddies about it, but I've never talked about it on the air. But his secretary made the reservations. She didn't make the reservations under Frank Sinatra. Because it was after our last show, she made the reservations for a party of eight. And we pull up in a limo in, in squad cars. You know, he had two bodyguards here from Atlantic City. So we pull up to this restaurant. Turns out the owner was looking out the window. And he sees a squad car and he sees a limousine. And he sees Frank Sinatra getting out of the limousine. And he rushes to the podium there and look. And there was no Frank Sinatra on the reservation list. You know, And now he's panicking because there's no room in the restaurant. It's packed. So when Frank comes walking in with Dorothy Oman, she said, Dorothy says, I have reservations for you. Now, the owner said, Mr. Sinatra, oh my God, Mr. Sinatra, we don't have a table ready, but we'll get something ready. Frank said, take your time. No hurry. We'll go to the bar. We'll have a drink. Now, meanwhile... Frank's going to the bar, and I'm I'm at the bar, but I look and I see the owner, he's telling people, I don't know whether they're relatives or friends, get out, get out, you know, get get, get to the table. Now the people are mad, he's taking the dishes off the table, because he's going to make room for Frank Sinatra, right? Well, these people are mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble, and you know, they went in the bar, he evidently must have been friends or, or good customers or family, and now he walks up and he says, your table's ready, Mr. Sinatra, he said, oh my God, he said, I haven't even got my drink yet. So now we sit down, and of course the owner gets the chef out of the kitchen, and Mr. Sinatra, may we recommend this, and the guy's so excited that Frank Sinatra's eating in his restaurant. And Frank orders some kind of fish. Anyhow, we're sitting down, and finally the, 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 the meal comes, and the, the owner is very proud, and he sets the plate down. Frank takes like a bite, and we're all sitting, and Frank takes a bite, and he said, ah, it's too salty, and he pushed the plate away. Now, when he pushed the plate away, the owner said, said, Mr. Sinatra, he said, it's a bit too salty. And he, the, the chef's behind the owner. He And the owner turns around, and he said to the chef, it's too salty. You know, he's yelling <laughs> at the chef. He, so they start recommending other things. How about this? How about that? You know, Frank said, you know what? I'm not hungry. I really am not. I probably shouldn't have ordered anything. I'm just going to have a drink here, and, and that'll be it. But the owner said, well, how about now? The owner's down there like hot dogs. How about a hot dog? He recommended everything on the menu. Frank said, no, he said, really, I'm, I'm, I'm not being fussy, I'm just not hungry. And the owner said, wow, look, Mr. Now he goes in the kitchen and I swear, it was like an old B movie. You hear him in the kitchen telling the chef, of all the, and the salty, you think you're and you hear him yelling at the chef. And, and, and you know, like the walls are shaking, you know. But he, he, sitting down at dinner with him was surreal because you know, I'm, now I'm, I'm sitting across from Frank Sinatra, you know. <laughs> and, and later, it always happened that way that that I would pinch myself sometimes. Because, again, let me go back to this poor kid that I was, shining shoes in bars, and Frank Sinatra's the jukebox. And here I was, years later, flying with Frank Sinatra. Sitting across, having dinner with him. Him talking to me like I'm a peer. Good show tonight, Tommy. I like your new material. And how I wanted to pinch myself, or you know. Uh, and yet, I didn't want to let him know how much in awe of him I was. And there were nights I wanted to say, oh, man. You were so good tonight in that particular number or that moment or even the whole show. I somehow picked up on that when I first met him that he had millions of fans. He didn't need another fan. He wanted a buddy, a pal. And I don't know what made me maybe being a former bartender, my instinct on that. So I never let him know how much in awe of him I was. You know, but there were nights I just, it was surreal, you know, that I wanted to pinch myself. You know, there's another thing I picked up on him. He, he never, he was not very good at taking compliments, and my friend David Letterman is the same way. You know, David, if you said to David, gee, that's a great show, you know, great show. tonight. Yeah, 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 listen, how's the kids, you know? <clears throat> if I said, David, I saw your monologue the other night, that bit you did about whatever it was, it was very funny. Yeah, yeah, he said, how's the kids going now? What are you doing? You see any of the old guys? He would change the subject. And Frank was basically the same way. If, if you, when Frank came off stage, if I said, you know, great show tonight. Yeah, good audience. It was a good crowd, you know.
4: Do you think that's because he was humble or because, you know, he was performing so much that when he was not performing, he just kind of wanted to detox from, you know, all things entertainment?
5: No, I think it was kind of that, that he wasn't a bragger and he didn't like braggers. If you wanted to get, you wanted Frank to leave your conversation, start telling him how much money you got or how many buildings you own or all the great things you've done. He'd say, oh, that's terrific that's great, Joey, or whatever he'd say, you know, and he'd walk away, because uh, he wasn't one to brag himself. You know, he let us work speak for what he, what he did.
0: And there you have it, our first and more to come. Come fly with me. And this is Tom Dreesen, the great comedian, on his reflections in his life and performance life and friendship with Frank Sinatra.
3: Pack up, let's fly away.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. Sue Thomas became the first deaf person to work as an undercover specialist, doing lip reading of suspects for an elite surveillance team at the FBI. In 1990, Thomas wrote her autobiography entitled Silent Night, which became the basis for the TV series Sue Thomas, FBI, EYE. The book begins with her losing her hearing at 18 months and chronicles her life all the way through graduating from Springfield College in Massachusetts with a degree in political science and international affairs to her resignation from the FBI. The continuing story of her life is chronicled in staying in the race where Thomas shares stories about living with multiple sclerosis. Here's Sue Thomas.
2: Some of you might have remembered that TV show called Sue Thomas, FBI. And as I travel around the country speaking, I find that I keep getting asked three most popular questions. Question number one, are you the real Sue Thomas? Question number two, how long did you work for the FBI? Only for three and a half years. Just long enough to get a TV show out of it. (laughs) And question number three, did you really run down the street catching the bad guys? Do I look like I ran down the street catching (laughs) the bad guys? It's been an awful lot of fun. You know, if you look back on my life, it has all the elements for Hollywood. The drama, the action, the intensity, the loss. And yet, when it came down to actually telling the real story of Sir Thomas, Hollywood wouldn't even touch him. I'm going to share the story that Hollywood wouldn't even touch. That journey started out very early in my life at the age of 18 months, when very suddenly in the evening, I went profoundly deaf. There was never a cause known. I wasn't sick. I just had my hearing one moment and the next moment. I was walking the path of silence. Years was spent with the speech therapist in front of a mirror with my hand on her throat, feeling the vibes and making those fa- same vibes. At the same time, I would be looking in the mirror, watching her form her lips that make the word, and then for me to try to form my lips the same way after years of speech therapy, came voice lesson. No, not for a professional thing, but only to get my voice to fluctuate, to go up and down and up and down. And after years of voice, came dramatic reading, only for the articulation and enunciation of words. So many, many years has gone into this voice And yet I know I still talk funny. And people say, oh, no, you don't. But I do. Well, how do you know that? Well, I can be at the airport, a restaurant, a hotel, any place at any time. And somebody will always come up to me and say, where are you from? (laughs) You really have an accent. (laughs) It's just a little bit different. And I'm aware of that. I went to public school. teacher put me in the first row so I'd be able to read lips as best as I could. I really didn't understand too much, but I tried to follow what the class was doing. And I remember that day as far as watching the students stand by their desk. And I finally figured it out. They were introducing themselves to their classmates. It became my turn that day and I remember getting up and standing beside my desk and very proudly looking out at my classmates and saying something like, (laughs) And with that, the entire class erupted in laughter. (laughs) Those kids were laughing so hard that day, I turned around to try to figure why everybody was laughing. And when I couldn't figure it out, I just sat down. But I came to realize that every time I was to open my mouth to speak, the entire class would erupt in laughter. And I got to the point where I wouldn't open my mouth. For 12 years, I sat in the silence. And never once did I open my mouth in that school. The defining moment of having my teacher come up to me one day at my desk. And she looked awful sad that day, and she re- reached down and took my hands in hers, and she led me out of the classroom. And that day it seemed like with an awful long walk. And that was the day I entered another class. I entered what was known As the dummy class, and now all these kids had more ammunition to work with, I just didn't talk funny. I was now the dummy. There were three things in my life as a child that saved me from total despair. One, my parents went to church on Sundays. And they tried to instill in me that there was a God that did not make any mistakes.
0: And you're listening to the voice of Sue Thomas. And my goodness, what a childhood it must have been. I just didn't talk funny. I was the dummy. And I know we can all conjure up what that must have been like for her. As many of us may have been those kids laughing at her, or at least hurting for her and not standing up for her. And then she hears about this God that doesn't make mistakes. Let's return to Sue with more.
2: They tried to tell me about his son named Jesus. And that if I would hold on to his hand and allow him to lead me and guide me, that there wouldn't be anything that I couldn't do or anything that I couldn't become. Secondly, I had a song Did you get that? I had a son. No, I have no recollection of music. But I had a mother that loved music. And she wanted to pass that love onto her only daughter, whether she could hear it or not. And as a little kid, she would place me on her lap as she sat in the rocking chair, rocking back and forth singing all of her favorite songs. And with my head on her shoulder as she sang, I could feel the vibrations. And if I really liked the song particularly well, my hand would sort of creep up and lay gently on her throat so that I could get all the vibes that I possibly couldn't. It must have been around Christmas time because one of the first songs that my mom ever taught me was Silent Night, and I loved that song. Now, as a little kid, it wasn't the words. The words had no meaning. Rather, it was the rhythm and the flow that brought forth tremendous peace. And I can remember, after a long, lousy day of school, going home on the school bus, looking out the window, with my nose all pressed up against the glass, <laughs> so nobody seen the tears flow down my cheek. Way down deep, I was start sight at Night, and I'd be okay. <laughs> the only thing I ever wanted as a kid, was a friend. Let's face it. Who wants to be a friend to a dummy? Who wants to be a friend to somebody that talks funny? And I never knew what the word friendship meant, at least not until I got to high school. By the time I went to high school, I met up with those crones. That was totally disrespectful, outright rebellion, in the alcohol, in the drugs, and everything. And it was my means of escape, at least trying to escape the world of silence. God's hand was upon me, for he brought in a teacher in my junior year that believed in me and began to work with me one-on-one. It was through her life I went to college. And even though I got to college, it took me eight years to leave the place. <laughs> eight years passed. I thought the world couldn't wait to give me a job. But I found out the world could wait forever. There wasn't one person that was willing to give me a job simply because I couldn't use the telephone, or they thought that I would misunderstand what was being said. And I went back to the same Hearing and Speech Center that taught me to speak, pounded on their doors asking for a job. They felt sorry for me. Why? They hired me even when they didn't have a job. I became like a gopher, a jack of all trades doing whatever they wanted me to do. And I can remember some days taking paper clips out of one box, sticking those paper clips in another box, and then putting them in the closet. I was only there for a few short months. You see, it was a friend at the Hearing and Speech Center who, in turn, had a the lived in Washington, D.C., who in turn had a friend that worked for the Department of State, who in turn had a friend that worked for the FBI. Are you following this? (laughs) So a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend from Washington, D.C. to Youngstown, Ohio, I get wind that the FBI is looking for deaf people, And if you don't think that I panicked, I thought to myself, what did we do? (laughs) It took them a long time to calm me down that day. (laughs) Basically, they said you didn't do anything. They just want to know if you want a job. Do I want a job? Somebody was finally going to hire me for who I was. Scratch that. I'm going to Washington, D.C. That's awesome. But the more I realized it, the more I knew I was going to be with the FBI. It just doesn't get any better. So off I go to Washington, D.C., and the first week is like a dream come true. They took me around. They introduced me to all the special agents, and after all the introductions was over, they took me downstairs to the firing range where all the agents practiced their target shooting. That was the very first mistake, the second mistake is when they handed me a Thompson 45 submachine gun. I shot up their entire shilling that day without even trying. It was a long time before they let me go back downstairs. And then I started my training to become what was known as a fingerprint examiner for the FBI. Within the first five minutes, I realized they had made the greatest mistake of my life. Someday, when you don't have anything else to do, take a look at any one of your fingers really, really close. All those lines are fingerprints. It was my job to count every single one of those lines on that finger eight hours a day, five days a week. And I can honestly tell you, if you've seen one fingerprint, you've seen them all. One day, my supervisor comes running, in. she's all upset. She tells me I have to get to the front office right away. There's only two reasons a person goes to the front office of the FBI, either to be terminated from their job or to be interrogated by the FBI agents. I get to the front office, I walk in, and they tell me to sit down. And that day, the questions started. And they went something like this. Miss Thomas, we understand that you read lips to communicate, and you do a very good job. But there's only one thing we wanna know, just one thing. Do you watch TV? Do I watch TV? That's all you guys want to know? Is it a federal crime to watch TV? I confess, I watch TV. Well, is it difficult for you, Ms. Thomas? Do you get anything out of it? Yeah, I do. I mean, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? You know, if the camera's on the person and I can see their lips, I can read them. But so many times the camera's not on the person that I can't see anything, so I don't know when anything's being said.
0: And you're listening to Sue Thomas, and what a voice. And my goodness, we can all see her and we certainly can hear her. Where are you from, she would get asked, and that always meant you sound different. You sound odd. She owns it now, you can hear it, but as a young person, well, every time she opened her mouth, kids laughed, so for 12 years, as she said, she sat on the sidelines. I had a song, she said, and that's because her mother loved music, and just hearing her pressing her head against a glass, trying to avoid and avert, taunts from school kids in a bus and her having that song, Silent Night. The words of which she did not comprehend, but the rhythms and melody she did, particularly the rhythms. And they gave her peace. That teacher, God brought me a teacher in my junior year who believed in me. And we all have that person who finally believes in us. Hopefully it's our parents. But that other person. And my goodness, then the FBI, well, they're looking for deaf people and what a sense of humor what a life story and you can read about sue thomas's story uh staying in the race is the book go to amazon.com or the usual suspects and order the book let's continue
2: well how about movies ms thomas they go to movies is it any better for you oh yes i go to movies And it's a lot better, it really is, you know. It's the lips, they're a lot bigger. (laughs) On and on went the questions. And I came to realize that the FBI had a huge problem. They were working on a case in which they video filmed the suspect. But when the camera activated, the sound mechanism failed. They had all this film with the bad guys talking. They just couldn't hear it. They wanted to know if I would sit and watch the film and write any words down that I could. I said, sure, no problem. From that day on, I never went back to reading fingerprints. <laughs> From that day on, I read lips for the FBI. And they sum up my job. I followed the bad guys around, and I read their lips. Then I went and told the good guys what the bad guys were saying. (laughs) And they even paid me to do it, too. (laughs) And overnight, like the snap of a finger, I finally made it in the world of sound. Good job. Good salary. Somewhat of a novelty in Washington where I began to be invited to the Congressional and Senator's Party. And for three and a half years, I lived in the fast lane of Washington, D.C., celebrating my success. I'm 35 years of age, when I'm at the prime of the FBI. And for 35 years, I have hated every step step that I took. When I was young, my parents tried to instill in me that God never made a mistake. And in my youth, I believed them and I held them. But supposedly with each passing year of getting older, and supposedly wiser, I began to doubt that. But by the time I am with the FBI, I totally doubted God. And I wanted to confront Him once and for all. I wanted him to confess that yes, indeed, he had made a mistake. So I resigned from the FBI to go to Columbia International Seminary, CIU in South Carolina, not to go there to become a preacher and not to go there to become a missionary but with only one objective to confront God face to face to ask him why he made a mistake the mistake was not minor it was major I mean after all anybody that would know of the mistake would have consideration of why I had to do this. It wasn't enough that he created in me a heart that loves people. I love people. And that came by God's creation that he put within me. But it's compounded by the issue that even though he created that love, and I want to be with people. He allowed the silence to overtake me, that it was physically impossible to be with people. That, my friends, is a mistake. It's a whopper. You don't give somebody something and then remove it in a tangible way where they can't have it. Helen Keller started it best when she said blindness separates a person from things and objects. Deafness separates a person from people. She's right. Oh yeah, I'm a good lip-reader. In my prime, I could be in a high-rise building in New York City with a pair of field glasses, looking across the street in another high-rise building, and telling you word for word what was being said. I'm good or I was, I'm so good I can even do two people. And, and that's like watching tennis, somebody will talk, they'll stop, they'll talk, they'll stop, they'll talk, they'll talk, they'll talk, I can get it. But you have a third person and a fourth person, I start deteriorating. I cannot function in a groom. And my heart wants us so desperately and so badly. I love to party. I love to be with people. But I can't. I can't. I got to seminary. God was waiting. You see, He didn't just give me one or two friends in seminary that I could relate to. He had 25 friends waiting for me. 25. I can't be with three people, let alone 25. And yet, every day, we go to class together, We would share meals together. We would study, we would pray, we would sing. We were always together. And these people saw the outward shell of Sir Thomas, the party animal, happy-go-lucky, the lion. Because what they didn't know is that when I left their mist and I went back to my apartment, I totally destroyed everything that I could get my hands on. The bitterness and resentment started during the first year of first grade. That puts me at six years old. From the age of six to the age of 35, that baggage was growing with each passing moment. That I was a broken person. I was a resentful person. I despised there wasn't a shred of happiness within her. And now I'm with 25 new friends.
0: And what a story, folks. And if you've ever seen Amadeus, And you see that moment where Salieri gets on his knees and he curses God and he questions God and he doubts God and he doubts everything he ever thought. And he's angry and he's bitter. And it's what made it an Oscar-winning movie, the greatest play I have ever seen as a young man. And my goodness, with each passing year, as I got older, I began to doubt that God doesn't make mistakes. At 35, I wanted to confront God once and for all. And about one thing, that yes, he did make a mistake. My goodness, to hear her talk about her bitterness. The bitterness and resentment had started in the first year of first grade at the age of six. Right to the age of 35, that baggage was growing with each moment. There wasn't a shred of happiness in me. And now, here's the final part.
2: So many times I cried out to God, please, give me my hearing. Please, just let me hear. And it was always the same answer. The great silence. So I turned from God. I more or less gave up on him. I went to the one friend in seminary, and I told her a lie. I told her that I had a terminal disease, that I was dying. Because in my warped mind, I thought if she believed me, she would want to spend as much time with me one-on-one. And that's exactly what happened. But what I didn't realize, the split second that I told that lie, that it would last for over seven months, and I had no idea that the first person I told that lie to, that would have out of those 25 people. And surely, I had no idea that that lie would totally consume me and destroy me. Seven long months passed, and I was wasting away. And there came a time that I could not take it any longer and I went to that same friend and I said, please call my advisor at school. Tell him that I need to see him as soon as possible. Tell him to have another faculty member with him. It's urgent. And I met with those two men. Tears streaming down my face. I confessed my sin. I knew that I would have to go to those 25 different people and to tell them the truth. And I was prepared to do that, I wanted to do it. But what I didn't know is that I would have to stand before the entire academic committee of that school. The night before I was to meet that committee, was the longest, darkest, quietest night of my life. The shame and the guilt was so unbearable that I got my suitcase out, and I began to pack to run away. I couldn't face it. And while I'm packing, my Bible fell on the floor. And when I looked down, I sort of chuckled, and I shook my head because I could not believe the pages that were staring back to me. I put the Bible on the bed, and I went down on the floor, face down, and I cried out, for God, for mercy, For forgiveness. That I told him that for thirty-five years I went to church, I sat in the pew, I sang the hymn, I talked the talk and told people I was a Christian. How dare I? The next morning. I stood before the entire academic committee, tears streaming down my face, <coughs> and my speech was so garbled with the emotion. I knew they had a hard time understanding me. The one thing that I remember more than anything else, on that day of my confession with us all was one lone man sitting in a chair. His head was in his hands, and as he heard me speak, he shook his head back and forth. And as I watched him, the tears flowed down his face. That man was Dr. Robinson McCorkum. In the days before that meeting, the emotions ran so hard. What will I say to him? What can I say? And that day bon, your right. And wouldn't you know it, they sat me right next to him at a dinner table. He looked at me, and the first word that he spoke was, Sue, I'm so proud of you. I looked at him, and the tears began to flow. And I choked them, and I took my napkin, and I placed it on the table, and I said, You have to excuse me. And I walked out and I went outside and I kept thinking, God, he doesn't remember. He can't remember. He said he was proud of me. So I regained my composure and I went back and I was able to finish the meal and at that time I said, Dr. McQuilkin, I need to see you as soon as possible or you meet with me. he said, just tomorrow morning. I looked at him. And I said, did you ever kick anybody out? Did you ever spell anybody? And he looked puzzled. And he looked at me. He said, I don't think so. But I'm not sure. And then there was the great silence. And he said, Did we kick you out? No, sir. But you could have. And maybe you should have. But you didn't. Instead, you taught me of the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And you just didn't stop with the love. You walked me through the healing process. And then you sent me. I don't know where I would have been had you kicked me out. And yet, thank God, It was like the snap of a finger. All he had to do was a TV show called Sir Thomas FBI. Here in the United States, over 4 million people have watched it. Today, that show is being seen in 65 nations around the world. Germany, South Africa, Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore, 65 nations. And the people write to me thinking they're writing this celebrity. And I have the opportunity to share a celebrity note God's greatest sinner, saved by grace. Yes. That is the real story of Sue Thomas, FBI. That is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God.
0: And does anyone doubt her? No. What a thing. What a story. What a lie. What a lie to tell. But she was just hurting, and that's why she told it. She was just looking for attention. And what a cry for help that was. Lying about a terminal disease. And the having to go before your peers and then an academic committee. And, well, face the pain. And she was going to run away, and that Bible fell out of the book. And she threw herself on the threshing floor. And she called out for forgiveness and grace. And she got both. And then when she confessed, the one man, well, the one man that could have kicked her out, didn't, and instead taught her the greatest lesson of all. Did we kick you out, he said? You could have, she said. You should have. And instead, you taught me the love of Jesus Christ. And we tell these faith stories when they happen, folks, and we tell them because they're true. That is, that is through Thomas's truth. And we don't shy away from these things. And this, this show is open to believers, non-believers, your stories, all of them we want to hear. And my goodness, this may be one of the most profound we've told. And by the way, pick up either book by Sue. Uh, one is called Silent Night, and the other, and the more recent one, Staying in the Race. It chronicles Sue Thomas's story. Share it with friends. Share it with anyone you know. What an antidote to suffering. Great job, as always. By Greg Hengler, a great and beautiful God story, Sue Thomas's story here, on our American stories.